The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, sometimes folks ask why we have children in worship. The new modern trend is for uh, families when you arrive on the campus of a church, that the kids go one place, the students go another place, and the adults go another place. Folks, our kids need to learn from us what it's like to come into the presence of God and to worship and to see and to experience that, to train them up uh, even now. We let them go out to have a teaching time that's on their level, uh, but they're looking around. Uh, It's fun as I look and sometimes I see your little ones and some of our folks express themselves in worship by raising their hands and I see your little ones uh, raising their hands and mimicking and someone said, well, they don't know what they're doing. I'd like, I'd rather them be doing that than what the world's teaching them to do. I'd rather them learn to raise their hands towards something that's valuable to raise their hands in worship towards than everything that the world offers them. So they're looking. So uh, you adults, some of them are learning how to sleep well. Um, some of them are learning how to be fully disengaged while pretending to be engaged. But um, I just sort of, uh, I see you out there. There was a guy one time at the church where I came from. I was having lunch with him and his wife, and he slept literally every single sermon. And he was a large enough man to where he could kind of do it, and his head wouldn't bob to the side. And we were at lunch, and he said, uh, it was a really good sermon today. And I thought, what the heck? I said, which part? He goes, what? And I said, well, which part? The part that put you to sleep or the part that woke you up? And his wife elbowed him and said, see, I told you he could see you uh, out there. And so, um, you know, it may be with our sermons that I would preach or Chris would preach or others would preach uh, that it leads us to maybe doze off. But there was a sermon preached a couple of thousand years ago by the greatest preacher that's ever lived, Jesus Christ. And I promise you, no one was dozing off. That they were captivated by what he was saying. Uh, That Jesus had gone into uh, the, the, the areas of Israel and he had gone up onto the mountain. And there he had gathered his called disciples and those who uh, were listening in and a great multitude had come around him. And they were listening to a teaching uh, that at the end of the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew 5, uh, 6, 7, and 8, uh, that at the end of that place, it said the people were astounded by him, that they were awestruck or thunderstruck by this teacher. And they then were taking this sermon. And I have wondered what did they do with it? That they heard the sermon, and I, I wonder if some of them said, oh man, Jesus, I've got a friend who really needs to hear this sermon. Can I get the podcast? Or, wow, that was, that was pretty good, preacher, but you, you went a little, little long. Or maybe, you know, that sounded a little too Presbyterian. I'm, I'm Baptist, and so uh, I don't really relate to all of it. Or some of them just took it and, and just pocketed it away and really did nothing with it. It didn't affect them or change them. And yet we know that for some, it radically transformed their lives, that they realized who they were with and they were changed in that. And it affected how they lived their lives. And so as we come to the end of this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and next week we're going to begin uh, with a series, our Summer in the Psalms series, 
The question is, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? What are we going to do uh, with uh, the sermon uh, that uh, Jesus has given to us? Are we going to say, well, those were good words and somebody else needs to hear them? Are we going to ignore them altogether? Or are we going to take them, appropriate them in faith into our lives and allow uh, the work of the Holy Spirit by applying God's word into our lives to change us and transform us and make us, as it were, more effective as his hands and feet uh, in the world today? That's my hope. That's where it leads us. And so this morning we're going to do basically a summation, an overview uh, of what we've learned on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, but then concluding it with the sort of now what. Because you see, Jesus came down from the mountain. All of us have had maybe a, a mountaintop experience. We had, as I like to describe them, as sort of the Jesus bumps. You, you get all excited, you feel the tingly, you get the little chicken skin that's kind of going on. You're like, whoo Friends are friends forever, and it's just great. And you you come back down from the mountain, though. And the question is, did anything that happened up on that mountain truly affect you more than just affecting your mind or your affections? Did it come in and so change you that it changed your will, it changed your life, it changed your orientation, as it were, to the world around you? And so today we're going to look at four things. What we believe, as we come out of this sermon, it's crystallized for us what we are to believe and what we believe matters. Because what we believe then leads us to understand who we are. So what we believe leading to a fuller understanding of who we are, uh, that then uh, leads us to say, well, then how do I uh, relate to the world around me and to God? How do I relate So I know what I believe now. I know who I am. I now am learning how to relate as this new person in Christ, how I relate uh, to the world. And then finally, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that? Because if you leave it uh, just at number three with how am I supposed to relate, you're a religious person. You are a disciple maybe, uh, but a truncated version of a disciple because you see a disciple makes disciples. A a disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who's been with Christ on the mountain, come in and with him and come and believed his teaching, believed in him, then goes from there and says, I'm going to put this into practice. This isn't just for me. And so number four is an incredibly important point and that we're going to get to. So we're going to move rather quickly quickly through the first three. Uh, What we believe. What Jesus has been teaching uh, in this is it says back in chapter 4, verse 17 through 22, it's before the sermon, but it leads up to the sermon. It says, from this time, uh, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it says that he went through walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, uh, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And so Jesus is coming and he's speaking the good news. Elsewhere it says that he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. 
the gospel uh, of the kingdom. And he was presenting it in such a way that he was saying to others, as you hear what I'm preaching, I'm going to invite you to follow me. And in following me, you're going to become fishers of men, uh, that you will have an effect, that you will impact the lives of people around you, uh, having an eternal significance in their lives. And so as we approach what it is that we believe, it's important to know first and foremost who it is that's been teaching us. That it isn't Bill McCutcheon and it's not some prophet and it's not some rabbi. That the person who is speaking and who has been preaching and has been teaching us has been God himself. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who is equal with God the Father and equal with God the Son in power and in glory. That he is fully God and fully human without corruption or confusion. Uh, That he was born of the Virgin Mary. uh, That he lived the perfect life for us under the law that he created and was the fulfillment of. uh, That he presented himself as a sacrifice for us. uh, That he then was crucified, we believe dead and buried. Experienced hell, which is the turning of God uh, from him. And the absence of the presence of God uh, in that sense. That he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven and seats at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Does that sound familiar? It's a creed within our church of saying this is what we believe. And we believe this about Jesus, that that is a central tenet of the Christian church. It doesn't matter uh, if it is a Baptist church, a Lutheran church, a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, a a non-denominational church. The central feature and belief of a Christian church is that we believe Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And that it's only through Jesus Christ that we find salvation. Jesus said later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We talked last week. He said, I'm the gate. I'm the door. I'm the path. Uh, I'm the only way that you get into the kingdom. And he was saying, this is incredibly good news. Because before, entrance to the kingdom had, in one sense, been blocked. And Jesus was saying, now through my life, you have entrance in all the Old Testament messianic, the the pictures of Messiah coming, all the prophecies, all the pointings were now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he was saying, I am the fulfillment of your wildest dream and your hopes. I'm the fulfillment of your faith. What you had believed without sight, now you believe with sight. You can see me and touch me and, and know and hear me. And so Jesus was coming and he was teaching. And it says that the people were amazed by his teaching. Because he didn't teach like anybody else. A a good rabbi in that day uh, would have taken the scroll, opened the scroll, read the scroll, and then said, well, I think it's this, and I think it's this. And they would have gone to rabbinic tradition and said, well, Rabbi Bob and Rabbi Steve and Rabbi so-and-so, they said this, and I uh, agree with them. And then everybody would debate it afterwards in the synagogue and say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Or, wow, that was really good. We agree with that. Truth, truth. Jesus walked into a synagogue, and how did he begin his teaching? Verily, verily, I say unto you, truth, truth. You don't get to debate it. I'm speaking it. And I'm letting you know I'm the Word incarnate, that I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah. I'm the fulfillment of I'm the fulfillment of all of these things. And so you can debate it all that you want, but it's not going to affect the reality that it's true. Truth, truth is what he said. And it said that everyone was astonished. They've never heard a rabbi like this guy. Friends, here's what we know that we believe. That you have to deal with Jesus. 
you have to make a determination about Jesus Christ. He either is who he says that he is, as presented in the scriptures, given to us and preserved by God, or he's a lunatic and a maniac that C.S. Lewis would talk about. But he, he is one or the other. And so we either say, if he is who he says he is, and if he rose from the dead, and he is the king, then all I can do is come and serve him. That's the only reasonable thing to do. Now, if he's not, then I don't have to deal with him at all. But that's the decision, ultimately, that you have to make even today. Some of you are going, "Eh, I'm not so sure about this guy. Well, you need to be sure about this guy, because one day all of us will meet him again. And we'll need to give an account of what we thought about him in this life. And he'll already know that. And so Jesus was saying, here's the kingdom. Here's the presentation. Here's the good news that you have entrance in. And you have access to my father through me and through my life and through my death. And so we need to know what we believe. So friends, here's a quick question. Do you know what you believe? Can you articulate what you believe? Can you share it with somebody else? Because what you believe matters. Do you understand that? Do you believe that, by the way? What you believe matters. Because you see, there's no such thing as neutral. There is either one who is with or against, for or against. So what you believe matters. And my hope and prayer is that you believe in Orthodox Christian theology that you have a worldview, that you have a system and a framework of theology that is driven by the scriptures. I read a very disturbing article uh, in our paper recently in the religious section by, um, by a spiritual leader within our community who was making a comment on a moral statement or a moral issue within our world. And the conclusion statement that he made uh, was this. You'll recognize, basically I'm paraphrasing, you'll recognize uh, that what I am saying is not based upon scripture. But that doesn't matter in this case. Folks, that's ultimately what matters in every case. For the believer. What's based on what Jesus has been teaching. Because from that we learn our identity. Who we are. What we believe helps us now frame uh, who we are. Jesus went up onto the mountain, and he began to teach, and he sat down, and he opened his mouth, and he taught. This is the beginning of chapter 5, and he begins with what we know as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger, thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are salt. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He continues to hammer home and teach this beautiful picture of who we are. He begins his teaching on the kingdom by pronouncing a certain kind of person to be most fortunate. He says, you, if you're in the kingdom, are blessed. You are the most blessed person in all of the world. And that word word blessed Uh, can be translated happy, and we've said that before, but it's not the happiness that we have here. 
It's a divine happiness that Jesus is speaking of. He's saying, this is your identity. This is who you are. One writer put it this way. This blessedness, this that we now have, it is the supreme dimension of happiness. Not a passing delight, but it is the state, the condition of the soul that is overwhelmed by the sweetness, delight, and contentment that comes from being in the presence of God. Would that describe you? That that's who you are? That you understand the sweetness and the delight of being in the presence of God? As the the psalmist said, your word is like honey to my lips. That I'm drawn to water that flows out of the rock. That you are the springs, as Isaiah said, you are the springs of living water. And I come and drink. I am the most blessed. I I begin now even to taste the sweetness uh, of this. That I know who I am, that I am later, he says, and you are a child of God because he says when we pray, we approach God as our father. He speaks about coming to our father and he says that you are the most blessed of people, the person in all of the world uh, to be most congratulated is how one writer put it. Isn't that a great description of you? Anybody else ever said that about you? Hey, you're the most, you should be most congratulated because you're a follower of the king. You're the most honored because you're a follower of the king. But here's this incredible thing that we learn within this sermon. He's our king. He's our judge. He's the magistrate. He, he is the one at the top of the food chain, as it were. But he's also our dad, our father, who art in heaven. That he is our father. That we have been adopted into his family. That we have been given a name. We've been given a lineage. We've been given a family. We've been given all of the inheritance of our king. We've been given everything. In Ephesians, Paul says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Have you ever considered all the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Have you? I mean, that should be your devotional for this week. Just take time. And consider that. Think upon that. Meditate upon that. And then say, everything that I could possibly come up with, he says, they're mine. That my name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life in indelible ink that can never be erased or would never fade. That I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. And I am with my Father. And with that, I can talk to Him anytime. That's the Lord's Prayer teaching. That He's our Father. And so we know who we are. I guess my question for you today is, do you know who you are? Does your theology, does your worldview, what's the conclusion of it? Because every worldview, every philosophy, every theology, it comes to a conclusion of who you are. If you're a secularist, the conclusion is this, you're nothing. There is no sense or meaning in your life. There is no God to give meaning. Uh, You are just the the final end of some cosmic algorithm that oozed out of the ocean and and came into some being, and and you've morphed into what you are, and at the end of the day, you clip off, and there's nothing about you that's significant, and even love. Why do we even love? Why do we do anything good? It's just we're here on this earth, and then we're not. That's the conclusion of it. So make sure that you're intellectually honest enough to take whatever worldview you have and drive it all the way back to saying, who am I within this? What does it say about me? Because our biblical worldview and theology says this, you are beloved and treasured. 
You are a child, a daughter, and a son of God. That's who you are most to be congratulated in all of the world. Because you are blessed by God. That's who you are. So what we believe, we've learned what we believe, leading us to knowing who we are. And now the disciples were like, okay, I get it. We see who you are. uh, And we are figuring out a little bit of who we are. We don't even know how to relate now to the world around us. They realized this was a totally new kingdom. And they realized that they needed teaching on how to relate to everything Because we now have to learn that we're in a new relationship with everything. Because it says that this is about what happened with us. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Created for good works in Christ. That you are a new creation. That you've been given a a new life. That you've been reborn. And that you now are engaging the world. Engaging God in a totally different way. A new kingdom has taken place. You have a new passport. You have a new identity. You have a new visa as it were. And so you come. And when you travel many of you have traveled around the world, you have to learn how to relate to that culture. Many of you have traveled a very long way from the Midwest and New England and figuring out our culture down here in the South. That you have to learn, well, I can't speak directly. I have to hem and haw a little bit. Hem and haw means you have to talk around the subject. And that decisions take a little bit of time. And that we add syllables. And that we don't know what traffic circles are all about. And that we, we use words like y'all and all y'all. And they mean different things. But you have to learn the culture in which you find yourself living. And Jesus is saying, you're now in a new culture. You're in a new kingdom. And you relate to God differently. That I've already led a, a part of it to understand that we relate to God uh, as our Father. We relate to God as our glorious King. We relate to God now in a very different way. That we're not relating to Him in any way to earn His favor, but we have His full divine favor. And so we come to him differently in prayer. We come to him differently in the giving of alms. Uh, We come to him differently in our worship service and in our public displays of morality and all of those. We relate to him differently. We understand that he's given us a law. He's given us rules of the kingdom, as it were, laws of the land, and we're expected to live by those laws. That makes sense in every other kingdom, right? But yet somehow in the church we go, wait, I'm going to come to the king. Why are there restrictions? It's the same as there would be restrictions in any other kingdom. He's saying, this is what life is like in mine. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He teaches us in this sermon that truth. Loving God and relating to him. Saying that it orients how we live our life. uh, That what we do, how we relate to God, is that this prayer that we learned, the Lord's Prayer... It begins how? Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven. Good. Stop right there. Hallowed be thy name. Our Father, who art in heaven. We know who you are. We're relating to you now as a child. But you are in heaven and you are God. Hallowed be your name. Glory and honor be to your name. Weightiness, significance, gravitas be to your name. And so as I orient my life to you and now to the world around me, I take that with me first and foremost, that everything I'm going to do as a follower of Jesus Christ is going to bring about some sort of statement about the reputation of my God and my Father. It's like the child who leaves the home and the father says, don't forget you're a McCutcheon. Don't forget your last name. When you go out in the world, you represent this family uh, in the world. Maybe that's lost in our culture, but that's how I was raised. 
that a name meant something in a community, and that you represented something larger than yourself. And so God is saying here, as you live, think that every single thing you do, people are looking and they're asking, what can I learn about God? What can I learn about Jesus by the people who say they follow him? Because you see, we can go give out a bunch of these Bibles on the beach. We can go down to Caligny and we can hand them out and hand them out and hand them out in hopes that a few people will read them. And that's important. We want to get the word of God into people's hands. But here's what people are reading first. They're reading you, the followers of Christ. You are their scriptures in their hands. So they're looking at you and saying, hey, you go to church. Hey, you say you love Jesus. Hey, you say you're a follower of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Okay, you say this. Let me watch you. Hmm. What are they learning, by the way, in your life? It's an important thing. Because how we relate to God then leads us to how we relate to one another. Because in that little prayer, our Father, the word our, pronoun, important. You could just sit with one word for a while. And that could be a whole sermon, right? That could be a whole devotional. You don't need to read a whole book of the Bible. Read one word, our. Guess what that means? He's my Father and he's your Father. Guess what that makes us? What does that make us? Siblings, brothers, sisters. Yeah, so that means we get to relate to one another, one anothering. Go read all the one another passages of the New Testament that we love one another, we serve one another, we care for one another, we bear one another's burdens, we lift one another up in prayer, we never let one another be alone in these situations. We do all of these things one another. We're generous towards one another. Uh, We pick one another up when we've fallen down. We do all of these. There is a family relationship and dynamic that takes place now that we relate to one another differently and we relate to the world around us differently. We do everything that we do in a hope that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That we're to glorify God in our lives and we're to enjoy him in our lives so that the world can look and see and say, whatever you got up on top of that mountain during that sermon, I want whatever it is. So that leads to the last thing that we're going to talk about. What do we do with this sermon? I wondered that. I wondered what the people would have done Because there was a bunch of people, we don't know how many, maybe a hundred, maybe a few hundred, I don't know. There were a bunch of people. And Jesus had finished preaching. And you wonder, were they heading off to brunch? Were they heading down to the beach? Were they like, well, that was a little longer than we had anticipated. uh, So, but we need to go and we're going to head down. And so as they were heading down the mountain, uh, it's interesting. The very first thing that happens in chapter 8 And it's important. Most people end the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, and it technically ends there. But you should always go, I wonder what happened next. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. They come down the mountain. They come out of church. And there's a leper in our parking lot. What's a modern day leper? I don't know. You, you've got a, a picture in your mind of what a modern day leper would be. But here's what a leper was like back then. They were socially outcast. They were morally outcast. They had no voice in their culture. Uh, they were disfigured by the effects of the fall in their lives. Uh, that they had no real hope. That this leper was there. And this leper had what's called Hansen's disease. And Hansen's disease is what we say is leprosy, but it's not this deforming of the body. It's not that things are falling off per se. 
because of the disease. It's because the disease numbs you to feel that all of your extremities lose their ability to feel. Your eyes, your, your nose, your, your tongue, your, your hands, you have no feeling left. And so Hansen's disease is when you get it, or leprosy, and you drop something into the fire, and you reach into the fire, and you burn your hand with third-degree burns. You don't feel it, but your hand now is deformed. That you fall and you break something, and you don't feel it. And you're deformed from it. And over time, the body disintegrates under this. And this man, it says uh, in Luke's account of the same thing, that this man was taken over by his leprosy. This leprosy had run its full course. The Hansen's disease had run its full course. One doctor, modern doctor, said that Hansen's disease or leprosy is a painless hell. That you feel nothing but yet you are destroyed physically. And that's bad enough, but the culture of the day, and even the Old Testament law, has said that they were unclean. And that for this person who is already ravaged by this, this man who it had taken its course, so that means it would have been years that he had had this disease. It said that he had to put his hand over his mouth and walk unclean, unclean. And so all the good-looking church people just finished church. And the leper heads towards him. Unclean. Unclean. And we know how the church folks responded later in the gospel. So they probably responded similar this way. Get away. Get back. Or they would have been like, ooh, don't touch him. Because you see, the Jewish law had gone even further with the rabbis. And said that even if uh, uh, you were near a leper. If the wind was going downwind, if you were downwind, then you only had to be a few yards from a person. But if you were upwind, you had to be a hundred yards from a person. If you put your head into a house, the entire house was ceremonially unclean. And so here was this man with absolutely no hope. Here was this man with absolutely no hope. And he cries out. And Jesus said, ah, what an opportunity to teach. What an opportunity to help my people understand what to do with this sermon. And what did Jesus do? He dignified the man by speaking to him and then by touching him and then by healing him. He spoke to him. Nobody speaks to a leper. And Jesus dignified the man by speaking to him. And he listened to him. He said, you have a voice And you may have felt like you've lost your voice. Some of you here feel like you have lost your voice in the world through abuse or being a victim, that you've lost your voice. And Jesus is saying, I hear your voice. Maybe you've been marginalized from culture, and Jesus is saying, I hear your voice, and all my followers should hear the voices of all of those who have been marginalized in our culture. And then the man comes and he says, will you heal me? And Jesus speaks. But he does something other than just speak. What did Jesus do? It says he touched him. And the word touched in the Greek here is the word seized him. Because it says that the man fell down on his face. That means he would have been prostrate on his face in front of Jesus, kissing the dirt. And it says that Jesus could have just simply thought it, right? He could have just thought it and the leprosy was gone. He could have just spoken it and the leprosy was gone. But Jesus reached down and he seized him. He touched the man with leprosy. What an ironic thing to do for someone who has no sense of touch. That the very first touch he would have felt in decades would have been the touch of his Savior. 
And it would have pulsated through his body of going, oh, this is what it's like to be touched. For some of you here today, that greeting time was the only touch that you'll have today. Because you live alone or you're isolated in your life. Take that times a thousand. And Jesus touches the man. And he says, not only can I heal you, but I will. He had mercy on the man. He gave him back life and dignity. And I wonder what the crowd was doing, but I imagine that the crowd was aghast. Some were fascinated by it and going, oh, this is what he meant. Others were going, did you see the preacher touch the leper? You know, the best meal on a Sunday is roasted pastor for lunch. Did you hear what Bill said? Did you hear what the preacher said? Did you, can you believe that he did that? He didn't speak to me. He said that. He did that. He was hanging out with that person. Doesn't he know who that person is in the community? And Jesus is like, yeah, I know exactly who this person is in the community. He's a person who needs my touch. And if you understood anything that I just said on that mountain, you would have been touching him first. But you didn't. So here's what we're to do with this sermon. There's two camps that I'm going to speak to real quickly. One is for those of you who are here and are not followers of Jesus Christ, and the other is for those of you here who are followers of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to approach Jesus as the leper did. You have to approach him today as one without hope and say that I am falling by the ravages of sin, the ravages of the fall in my life. I have no hope in and of myself to save myself, to heal myself, and I come and I worship you. I prostrate myself down in front of you. And I believe in faith that you not only can, but you will heal me. But that's what we have to do when we come to Jesus. That we don't say, I've only got a little leprosy. I'm 75% clean, but that 25% I need a little help on. We come fully knowing that we can't save ourselves. That's how we approach Jesus. Of recognizing our need, coming in faith to believe, and worshiping him for who he is. And in that instant you'll be healed and saved. That's the beauty of it. No matter what your scars, I promise you, there is no scar that you have that Jesus is going to flinch on. I hope that we're a church that doesn't flinch. Because as we go out in the world and people are sharing their leprosy with us, they're sharing their disease of the fall uh, with us, if you go, ooh, wow, hmm, you've lost the opportunity. Now for you, the believer, quickly here, and we've got to wrap up. Go find lepers. You know who they are. Go identify who they are in your life. And then go take all that you've been learning, all that you've been hearing, appropriate it, and go and be with them. And here's what I'm going to promise you, two things. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be with you, and he's going to celebrate you, and he's going to say, hey, when you went to lepers, and you went to prisons, and you went to homeless, and you went to hungry, and you went to needy, and you went to the destitute, and you went to all of them, you did it in my name, and I was always with you in that you were actually serving me as you served them. So you're going to know that there's going to be a celebration and a cheer from Jesus, and that's the only one you need to hear, because what you're also going to hear from the church is, woohoo, what are they doing? doing with those people why are you hanging out with that person what do you mean you're having dinner with that person don't you know who they are don't you know their reputation don't you know it can be sullied now be wise in engaging the world but it says that we have to go into the world so folks don't take this sermon and this sermon series and especially don't take chapters five through seven and do nothing with it either respond and come to jesus or respond and take jesus out to the world let's pray Father, thank you for this sermon.
It's captivating. It's challenging. It's frustrating. It's encouraging to us, but yet devastating at the same time. And I pray that as we hear these words, we wouldn't keep them for ourselves, but we would be changed by them, and we would take them to a world that's desperately in need. They've lost their feeling. Nothing tastes anymore. The world keeps running further and further, trying to find something to stimulate the soul, and they find nothing except emptiness and hollowness and death. And so I pray that we, your hands and feet, we, uh, your church, would go out into the world and that we would touch and speak and love and give dignity and give the words of hope and see many come to faith. And Father, I pray that for those who are here who have not yet bent the knee, that they would see their need today and they would turn to you. Father, we bless your name for you are our anchor, steady and sure. And we worship you today. In Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.